As always, and we, uh, we say it most every week, but we really do mean it, it is good to be with you today. It is always good to be in the house of the Lord, not that this is, you know what I mean. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, and it is good to be in particular with you. Now, I know that many of you um, here today, um, I'm sorry, let me say it this way. Some of you uh, here today like to beat traffic when you get out of the service. And I want to encourage you, don't do that um, just for today. And if you're watching online, you may want to beat something else. I'm not sure. You just want to get, don't leave just because we have a special uh, um, uh, celebration honoring right here at the end of the service. We just want to give uh, to the Stowns and uh, who've been so faithful here. So um, uh, don't, don't leave early because uh, you don't want to miss that. Now, today we are finishing up a series, and that series has been on First Peter. And it is a book that was written by a guy who knew Jesus intimately when Jesus was here physically on the earth. One of Jesus's closer friends, one of the three that was a part of the inner core. Now, we've said several things uh, along the way. Just some of the things we've looked at that Peter tells us is this. When faith gets difficult, we can indeed stand firm. A godly life is more compelling than persuasive lips. Unity brings blessing. We can either suffer in sin or suffer and serve. We can rejoice in suffering rather than fearing it. Last week we said this, godly leaders know the way, they go the way, and they show the way. Now we're in this last section, we've been showing you this all throughout, there's at least one way you could divide up the book into five parts, and this is the way we've chosen to divide it up, and the last part we're, we're in right now, closing out today, and I want you to know Peter is going to close the book in the exact same way that he opens the book. So I've never done this in a sermon series before. Try to have one phrase that's true of all of us. We call it the fallen condition focus. What is it that we all struggle with in life? Could be, it could be a perspective, could be sin, et cetera. What is something that is easy, comes natural to us? And you contrast that with what is supernatural? What does God desire for us? How is Christ the hero, et cetera? Things like that. So I'm going to close it in the exact same way because I think Peter does it this way. Do you know what the main thrust of today's, uh, of this particular section is? That when faith gets difficult, most of us are tempted to walk away. But first, Peter tells us that when faith gets difficult, we can indeed stand firm. Now, you're going to see it. This verse 12 is actually the point of the book. He tells us that explicitly. Therefore, we should take him at his word. But if you are able, physically able, would you stand in honor of God's word as we read together this last section, beginning in verse 6. Of 1 Peter 5. Yeah, I was going to try to do it without these. <laughs> Somebody said, good luck. In the words of John Calvin, good luck. Verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ 
will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. You may be seated. We can divide this up really into some very simple sections. And then he, he gives us here just two. There are the final instructions that he's going to give. And here's what we mean by final instructions. He's going to list off for us a couple of imperatives, which is been such a main thrust within this book. Remind you of this, imperative, because it's a 50-cent word. Imperatives tell us um, that that which we are to do. So what is God calling us to do in his word? Those are called imperatives. There are also these things called indicatives. It tells us that which is true. Indicatives tell us what's true. Imperatives tell us what to do. And he starts this section out right here with a few imperatives that really in some ways are a summary of the entire book, but they're final instructions. What do you want your final words to be? How do you want to be remembered? What are the final instructions? If I told you today that you could give your final words to your loved ones, that you would be well taken care of, et cetera, but they would never see you again, what would be the final words you would want someone to hear? Always pay attention to the last words. In the scriptures, the last words indicate to us, they point us in a direction that says, pay attention. So what is he saying right here? Last final instructions there in verses 6 to 11. I think he's telling us to accept God's sovereignty. In verse 6, he says, humble yourselves, therefore. Now, in the original language, that therefore would be there at the beginning. We've said this many times. Anytime you see the word therefore, you should go back and see what it's there for. Verse 6 is connected to verse 5. It says this, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He is not passively resistant of pride. He is an active opposition of pride. God will not be mocked. It's just a truth. You can believe it or not believe it. It will not change the fact that God will not be mocked and he will always stand in opposition of pride. Now, it may seem as though he's standing back from a distance and allowing something to go on. I assure you, that will be short-lived. In the grand scheme of all things, in, in, in eternity, God simply will not be mocked. He opposes the proud. That is true of his children as well. When we choose to live a life, be it for five minutes or five days or five months, however long it is, when we choose to live a life that believes that we are capable of doing something really, really impressive and eternal, uh, apart from him, he'll let that go on for just a little while. And he would like for us to humble ourselves. But if we don't, he will humble us. Peter says, trust me on this one. I speak from experience. I know what it's like to be humbled. And so I'm telling you, humble yourselves. Where? Under the mighty hand of God. And the mighty hand of God is talked about in many different ways all throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament. I won't give you all of the ways 
but just simply three ways that I think that it is that we would accept his sovereignty, how it is that we would humble ourselves up underneath his mighty hand. Number one, God has a mighty hand in the scriptures, a hand of deliverance. There are times in which God is actually going to deliver people out of particular circumstances, and he's going to do it in such a fashion that it's very clear he is the one who is doing the delivering. Go all the way back into the Old Testament. You remember when Moses was called to take the people out of the land of slavery into the promised land, which would be flowing with milk and honey. They were going to, you know, there's going to be a place where God was going to bless them so that they might be a blessing to the entire world. Did they have the capability of removing themselves from the most powerful nation on the earth at the time? No. So how did God deliver them? In some freakish ways. Like there's these signs, there's these, like God did some stuff that everyone around saying, yeah, that's just not stuff that they're drumming up on their own. The Israelite people are not going to be able to do this. And in every way, God proved himself superior to all of the gods of the Egyptians. And as he took them through, God, hear this, delivered them out of something. Now, wouldn't it be awesome if that was God's only hand, uh, 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 mighty hand? That he always and only delivered us out of things that we find undesirable. It's not the only way that God's mighty hand operates in the scriptures, though. His mighty hand also operates in a protective manner. Think of it this way. Someone is right here and his hand comes over them so that only the amount of harm to be done to them is what he allows. Sometimes God is not going to deliver his people, be it an individual or a group, from extraordinarily undesirable, painful circumstances. Sometimes what he's going to do is protect them from permanent harm. You've heard the story before. I won't share the whole story, but just think of it this way. There are times in which God sees someone down in a pit, incapable of getting themselves out of the pit. And so rather than delivering them from that pit, puts a ladder down in there. And we think, oh, this is great. Now I'm going to climb the ladder now. He uses the ladder to climb down himself in order to come and do it, to join the individual who's in the pit. Not to bring them out of it just yet, but to be present with them. Paul, when he was ministering the gospel, it says that he was stoned. God did not deliver him from the stoning. In fact, Paul actually um, was out like a light. And then the scripture says that God's hand intervened. He healed him. He, 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 um, God made him rise up. And Paul says, fantastic, I'm still alive. That must mean that God wants me to continue on with the mission. So like a crazed madman goes right back into the crowd who just did the stoning on him. Why would he do that? Because he knew that God's hand was a protective hand. While God was not not going to keep him from harm, he was going to protect him from ultimate harm. And Paul said this, whenever you want to take me, take me. But as long as you give me breath, oh, this gospel will not yield. Sometimes God's hand is a delivering hand. Sometimes it is a protective hand. 
Thirdly, sometimes it can be a hand of discipline. Now, I'm not here to debate the the merits of uh, corporal punishment. Um, I I, I have, at this exact moment, I have no care or concern what your thoughts or my thoughts are on it. I'll just tell you this. I grew up with a father who said this, I want the same hand that wallops my sons behind, I want that to be the same hand that also embraces that son. Sometimes his hand is a hand of discipline, meaning he is going to to alter our ways. He's going to correct us. He's going to rebuke us. He's going to train us. He's going to maneuver us back into a position in which we live a life that that is not running away from him, but is being brought back to him. Now, it is never a hand of discipline as in someone who goes on a wild tantrum and is out of control. It's never God. God's hand of discipline is always out of his love for us. In 2 Samuel 24, those of you who are involved in the uh, 2 Samuel uh, study right now, you'll get to it here in a little bit. He corrects David when David took a census. And you think, wow, big deal. Leaders take census all the time. And God specifically told him, don't do this. It's an indication that you're going to be looking at your own power and might. And you're trying to, to determine how it is that you have received honor and glory. Don't do that. Let me take care of how many people join. You, you just be faithful to love and to shepherd. Lead them well. David took the census. The scriptures say that God came in and he disciplined David. Remember the writer in the book of Hebrews? What father? who loves his children, does not discipline them. Whatever form it may take, correction is a sign that I love you. Mom, dad, especially if you're young in this journey, you're just getting started, you got that three-month-old right now, I know it's just the cutest thing that has ever existed. I know that there's no way that child will ever sin, and I assure you they will at some point. That child will turn from being the most glorious thing in the world to you'll think, I don't know who you, who you belong to. It, it can't be, we did not train you like this. That child at some point, the most unloving thing that parents can do to their children is to never correct them. To simply let people go in a direction that they find to be attractive in the moment is a really bad habit to get into. And so if you don't want to love people, then don't ever correct them. Now, I'm not talking about you going and disciplining your 60-year-old child. I'm talking about the appropriate time and the right. God disciplined because he loves. He just simply will not let us get away with running our own direction. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God means this, that we are going to accept, embrace the fact that God is sovereign And I'm not going to do everything within my power to try to create different circumstances for me. I'm going to accept what he has brought. My lot, if you will, in life, I'm going to accept it as coming from the hand of God. Now, notice what it says. It doesn't mean that we never, it doesn't mean that we, uh, well, you know what? Someone is just beating me up right now. And so therefore, I'm just going to accept this from God. Thank you, Lord. Have a brain. Think clearly. Look look what he says. At the proper time, he may exalt you. 
Notice that at the proper time, God's hand is going to be in a different manner. It, his hand is going to actually now exalt you to the place where he wants you to be. And it's at the time that he wants it to be. It is not necessarily at the time I want it to be. There are many things throughout, time, throughout our lifetime. I have prayed, God, would you remove this circumstance? God, would you help? Would you rescue my son or whoever it may be? God, would you step in? Would you redeem? God has said, nope, not yet, not yet. At the proper time, in his divine wisdom, for his divine purposes, which will ultimately give him divine glory, it, God is going to exalt us when it is just the right time to exalt us. He knows how long we need to be in the circumstances that we are currently in. Humbling ourselves means I accept that. And when he's ready, so be it. Now, what do we do in the meantime while we are waiting for either his deliverance or his protection or his discipline? What, 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 what do you do in, in there? Cast all your anxieties on him. I think Peter gives us such great and simple instructions when he says, humble yourselves. How ultimately do we do that? When we cast our anxieties upon him. You've heard this before, that term cast is the same term that is used when Jesus cast demons out of people. It is a term that is used for hurl or throw. Take the anxiety that you currently have about whatever situation it is in your life, whatever it may be. Some of you right now are, are trying to figure out how in the world are we going to pay the bills this particular month? Some of you right now cry your eyes out every single night because a loved one, a dearly loved one in your life, be it a parent or a child or a sibling, someone is, is, is going in a direction in life that you know it is leading towards a dark and dangerous and destructive path. And there's nothing you can do about it. Some of you have situations at work at this very moment right now that you are begging and asking God to change. How do you cast your anxieties on him? You fall to your knees and you pray in such a manner that is not timid. Let me explain. Don't pray in such a fashion in which you're going to um, get the proper posture and you're going to come in and say, Lord, I would like to start out uh, this particular prayer by, uh, first of all, acknowledging uh, your greatness and majesty and dominion and power. And, and I want to give to you the seven verses that I have memorized this morning, Lord. And I want to come to you. And I want you to know um, that if at all possible, if it be in your will, if it would bring you glory, if, if, if. This is posturing. Casting your anxieties on him is when you say, oh, God, I can't get out of this. And I don't know why you want me here, but I am begging you to move. If your heart is anxious, don't come timidly to God. 
come boldly to God. And don't worry about your credibility in coming before God. That's putting trust in your own ability to be right before God. Come boldly because Jesus Christ has lived the life that you could not live, that I could not live. He died the death that we should have died. He has received the wrath of God. He has done everything perfect and has given us his righteousness so that we can come in as if we are Jesus. So don't come in thinking you haven't earned the right. Of course you haven't earned the right. Come in believing that Jesus has earned the right for you, so pray like it. Cast, hurl your anxieties on him. The very one whose hand right now is not operating in the way that you want it to operate. Do you hear what God is saying? Come to me. Not a philosophy, not a system. Come to me. Come to me with your honor. Come to me with your words of praise. And come to me with your pain. Come to me with your anxiety, which I've already told you, don't be anxious. Are you sinning when you're, of course. Come to him with your anxiety. Where else are you going to go with your sin? Why would we do this? Why would we come to a God with our anxiety? He tells us, because he cares. This right here is the hardest truth in all of the Bible to actually believe. I am confident that most of us have zero issue trusting that God somehow or another stopped either the earth from its rotation or put that, I don't know how he did all this stuff, but for 24 hours, this sun here, we don't have a huge issue believing that. We don't have typically a, a, a large mental hurdle to get over when we think about this giant sea that parted and so these group of people walked through. We don't, we don't have a, a huge issue with people being raised from the dead. What we struggle the most with in all of the scriptures is believing that God actually cares. Why? Because if people treated me the way that people treat God or the way that we treat God, we sure wouldn't care like that. Thank goodness he's not like us. Thank goodness in some ways we are like him. He cares. I know right now it does not seem like he cares. He cares. How do I know that? Because this says so. And either it is true or it's a lie. I'm not sure what else he would have to do in order to show us his care other than the cross itself, but cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He may not change the circumstances. It does not change the fact that he cares. So come to him. Warren Wiersbe, I think, gives us some very, very helpful instruction when he writes about what it is that happens when we come to the Lord and when we pray. I want to just read this to you. It's a little bit more lengthy of a quote than I normally would, but 
Um, but this is great. How does God show his love and care for us when we give our cares to him? Number one, he gives us the courage to face our cares honestly and not run away. He quotes in there from Isaiah 41, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Number two, he gives us the wisdom to understand the situation. He quotes James 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Number three says he gives us the strength to do what we must do. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then finally, number four, he gives us the faith to trust him to do the rest. Psalm 37.5 says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. Oh, my friend, you may feel like sometimes you're praying to an empty building, but I assure you, every prayer is given to a God who listens and who cares. So pray as if he does. Verses 8 and 9, it tells us that we are now to recognize and to resist the devil. It says, be sober-minded. God cares, the devil does not. There are times in which the devil may put something in our path that may look awfully enticing and may be exactly what I want when I want. I assure you, it will never be good for you in the long term. Recognize when it is that there is attack from the evil one. Now, rather than us getting off on these wild, sensational things about the devil and et cetera, which uh, some of those uh, are, are actually true. We see uh, demons cast out in the scriptures. There's some freakish things in there. Rather than thinking about that, can we think about what happens in the overwhelming majority of the time with the devil? He comes disguised as an angel of light. And he comes looking awfully nice. And what does he do when he comes to, to God's people? It's the same pattern. We see it in the garden. He's done this for, forever. He deceives. And he uh, brings about fear. So it says we must be sober-minded, which means self-controlled. It says we must be watchful, which means awake and aware. Do not fall asleep. I can't help but think that Peter was thinking about that instant when Jesus said, oh, guys, would you keep watch with me? Help, pray. And Peter had the opportunity to, to be watchful, to, to be caring. Peter had the opportunity to recognize, and yet he fell asleep. He's telling us, don't fall asleep here. Your adversary, another word for that is enemy. Remember, the enemy is the enemy. Your wife is not the enemy. Your son is not the enemy. Your mother-in-law is not the enemy. Your boss is not the enemy. Your coach is not the enemy. The president is not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. And your adversary roams around. He, he is pacing around looking for someone that he may devour. He devours us through deception and he devours us through fear. He devours us through deception by helping a, a create a scenario in which we would think God is not good. We cannot trust that God is good. This is how he operates. This is what he did right back in the garden. Did God really say that? But you know why he said that, don't you? 
It's because he's really jealous of you. God is not as majestic and powerful and secure as you think he is. God is not giving you what you desire right now really because he's insecure. And he just really needs you to do something for him. God is not good as one deception. But now, what is the fear that we, we live with? Is that God's love is not permanent. That's what we fear ultimately. Because deep down inside, we know. We know that we're not going to ever, no matter how many chances God gives us, we know we are never going to do what is necessary. So what if it's not true about Jesus? God is not good. His love is not permanent. The same two lies have been coming to God's children over and over and over again. So Peter says, my friends, my beloved children, be alert, be aware, be watchful. Know that he's coming after you with these two things. And he will not stop. He may stop for a moment, but he will come back when the time is right. So don't fall asleep spiritually. Keep pressing on. Thomas Schreiner says this. I find this to be profound. The roaring of the devil is the crazed anger of a defeated enemy. And if they do not fear his ferocious bark, they will never be consumed by his bite. Now, the question is this. How do we defeat the devil? Write this down. We don't. God does. So please, don't go on some spiritual safari looking around. Where's the devil? Because I'm going to exert my authority over the devil. Greater is he that is in me than he is in the world. So I'm going to just take charge here and I'm going to rebuke him and I'm going to say a few things. I'm going to follow a formula. I'm going I'm to tell the devil where it is that he can go. And I'm going to take charge right now. Please do not do that. You will be a fool. He is bigger. He is badder. He is far more powerful than any of us. If you seek to take down the devil, I assure you, you will be brought down. But God knows how to defeat. So what do we do? We draw near to God and let God deal with him. Now notice what it says. It says that we are to resist the devil. It does not say we are to run from the devil. We are to run from temptation, flee that, but resist the devil. Meaning what? Stand firm in the truth of who God is, in the truth of what it is that he has done. And when you are deceived, run back to the truth. And when you have trouble believing the truth, pray that God would open your mind and your heart to accept, embrace the things about him that are true. Resist him. God will take care of him. He says, stand firm in the faith. I think this really means keep moving forward in all aspects of the faith. Worship, read, take communion, meet with God's people, confess, pray, etc. All of the normal ways that God has given us to draw near to him. And then he says this, look at this. Resist him affirming in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You are never the only person who is suffering. 
Never. You may be the only person who is going through the exact circumstances as at this exact moment, but you are never the only person who has suffered, ever. People in your neighborhood, people in your church, people in this country, people all over the world know what it's like to suffer. So remember them. In verses 10 and 11, he tells us ultimately to trust God. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, what a great title. After suffering, it's going to happen. Understand it's a part of life, how God uses it, I don't always understand. But this God of all grace, what does that term mean? It means that there is no situation that we will ever encounter in which his grace will not be sufficient for us. There's no circumstances that we will ever face in which God's grace will not be sufficient for us. The God of all grace is going to do a few things. He is going to confirm, strengthen, establish, um, uh, I'm sorry, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Restore means he's going to put in order. He's going to make right. Jesus will do this in the fullest sense of the word when he returns. I'm not sure what the actual difference is between uh, 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 confirm and strengthen. I, I tried with all my might to look up the difference in the words and the same root word. And I, I don't know why he puts them together, but they both mean this, that they mean to strengthen or to make in a strong. And then finally, when he uses the term establish, it means to place us on a firm foundation. This is what he's going to do. I want to come back to one thought in there, but let's conclude the book here in verses 12 through 14. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you. Here's the purpose of the book. Here's why I've written to you. Exhorting, declaring that this is the true grace of God, so stand firm in it. What is he referring to when he says this? It's better to be referred to everything that he's written about in this letter as a whole. Stand firm means don't leave the faith. Keep on keeping on. Stay at it. Don't be a Christian by name only. Pursue the person of God with a reckless abandon. Pursue him. With every fiber of your being, seek to get to know the God of the universe. Believe in the grace of God, meaning trust in what it is that he has done for you, not what it is that you have done for him. Trust in what he is doing, not what it is that you are going to do. Trust in what it is that he will do, not in what it is that you will do. He says that Sylvanus, this brother, he's um, a, a partner uh, with him. He's an accompanying uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas on their journey. He says Babylon sends their greeting. It's just uh, the, the church in the city of Rome Babylon was referred to as that. Mark, another one who uh, uh, had been a great companion to him. And then one of my favorite parts of the book, I uh, had students point this out to me every year in youth ministry, greet one another with a kiss. It's not a throwaway line in here. What, what's he saying? It would be a handshake for us in our culture. They do the whole cheek thing. If you watch, you know, foreign players, you know, being... Um, be it uh, soccer, tennis, or whatever, you'll see this. Uh, there. There's this, this little quick, quick peck on the cheek. Why do you think God gave us, hey, here's it's just me, that there's the physical 
contact that tells the person you're okay. It's just, it's nothing sensual. Nothing here, just a kiss. Handshake, hug. It just sends a message to the person that I'm saying, you're okay. I want to be near you, etc. Close with this. John Flavel is um, one of the Puritan authors that um, wrote uh, many, many books. And if you learn how to read the Puritans, then especially their commas, their weird use of commas, if you can figure that out, then it can be of great benefit for you. John Flavel was married four times. His first wife died while giving birth to his first child. They both died. His second wife uh, bore him uh, more children, uh, a few children. His third wife he was privileged to be married to for 11 years before she died. All three of these ladies died. He finally was married a little bit later in life and got to experience um, uh, a great companionship. All four of these ladies were, were godly women, but um, finished out his uh, life being married to this other woman who was herself a uh, widow and a son of a minister, John. Flavel had an extraordinarily difficult life. I just gave you some of the difficulties personally. In the context of history, this is when the church was being persecuted ruthlessly. He was constantly on the run, constantly having to meet in secret, etc. John Flavel wrote a book called Preparations for Sufferings. I would commend it to anyone again, just um, get used to the, the weird sort of way that things are, are written. When he writes specifically about the sufferings and what is to come. He talks about a moment in which he was out in the woods and he says that it was more of an education for him than all of his uh, formal training combined in terms of the majesty of God, the goodness of God, and what it was that was awaiting him. What Peter's trying to get across to us is this. Church, there is something that is coming down the road that is going to be so magnificent, I can't even explain it to you. And so it puts into context what it is that we personally experience right now. And so as we are experiencing something right now, don't get caught up solely in what it is that's happening in the moment. Please think about the bigger picture. Know that what we will experience will far outweigh this right here, and it ought to drive us in the moment to say, God, no matter what it is that I experience, I want others to hear about you. I want to introduce as many people as I possibly can to you, God, because there is no soul satisfaction without you. John Flavel wrote this about that context, suffering here and now, what is to wait. Listen to what he says. Say to the soul, come on, my soul, come on. Seest thou the joy set before thee, the crown of glory ready to be set on thy head by the hand of a righteous God. Oh, what comparison is there betwixt those sufferings and that glory? Liberty is dear and life much dearer, but Christ is dearer than either. My friends, you are going to experience suffering. Your faith is going to be challenged. Life is going to be difficult. Hang in there. Press on. 
Get after it. Do not get caught (laughs) into thinking that this isn't worth it. Because God will do something in you and through you that you currently can't see. But if you quit, you'll never know. Father, I pray that you would give each of us the grace to stand firm. Lord, would you help us, um, whatever you mean by humbling ourselves up underneath you, God, I pray that we would do that. And Father, I pray that you would use us for King Jesus. Thank you for the promise that you'll never leave us or forsake us, but God, I'm praying not, not just that we would be inspired, but that we would be empowered to move forward with a life that lives on mission, would you use each of us, even in the midst of our suffering, to bring blessing to a lost and hurting world? Oh, God, help. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.